Divorce is a force that is certainly present in not only the West, but really all over the world. And the fact of the matter is, it was even an issue during the time of Moses. It was an issue during the time of Jesus. It's an issue now. I've been affected by it. Our family's been affected by it. Uh, there's not many of you probably who haven't in some way been affected by divorce. Some of you have been married multiple times. And, uh, and so when you read what we're, we've read over the last couple of weeks as it relates to Luke 16, there's a sense in which you want to worship, but there's a sense in which you want to walk out with your tail between your legs in some way because you feel less than. You feel like, and now even Jesus seems to be given impetus to the fact that you're nothing more than an adulterer. If you've married a woman and, and she's been married before, you've committed adultery, and, you, and we don't even know what to do with it. And we, we hope that kind of grace covers that, and, and it, of course we think it does, but the, and we know it does, of course it does, and yet we feel that sense, and, and it, we don't know what to do with this. So we, we just kind of, kind of skip over it. I want to give you uh, my perspective on what I believe Jesus is doing and why he brings this to bear at this particular moment with this particular audience. If you'll remember, uh, last week I said the Bible is written for everyone, everybody on the face of the planet, but you also have to realize that the Bible is not written to everyone. You said, what's the distinction? Well, there's always, uh, and I always challenge uh, new believers, it said always when you're reading the Bible, coma, remember coma. What's the context? Who's he speaking to? What, exactly what's going on? Because you can take anything, as Satan did during the wilderness temptations, and he just pulled these little verses beautifully out and used the word of God. You can turn on the TV. Maybe you're watching, I could never imagine myself being TV preacher, and I don't still think of myself as that, but somehow for, through, the, through the, well, I don't know if they were well-meaning, I'm kidding. But they, we're, on, we're, we're, we're now on television, and many of you said, I've been flipping through and on Fox, and there, you know, there's church at the red door, and it's just crazy. And, and, uh, and we've got some growth there. And so maybe you're watching, and you just don't, you know, TV preachers. That, a TV preacher can take a verse, and then they can make it into anything they want. They can, you know, build their own little kingdom. And then, and then you hear about all these crazy things that are going on in the context uh, of people using verses out of context. What's the context? And then what are your observations, coma? And then what does it mean? What does all this mean? And then how do I apply that to my life? Context, observation, meaning, and then how do I apply that? Does that have any bearing on my life in the 21st century? So we have to ask those questions. We cannot just isolate and come and try to find moral directives and, and little, little moments that the Satan can then use and crush you over the head and crush your spirit and make you feel unworthy to ever do anything profound for God because, well, in this case, well, you're an adulterer. You're an adulterer. Luke 16, verse 14. I'm going to go back. He said, we've been on this for three weeks, four verses. Yes, we have. <clears throat> and if Jesus comes back and said, Jeff, you spent way too long in Luke, then I will acknowledge that Jesus said that. But until he tells me that in my spirit, we're going to spend that little time. We're camping out here. So remember, who's he speaking to? Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money. So remember that. We're going to be looking at lovers of money, who were listening to all these things, and they were scoffing at him. We've discussed that the last... Uh, the coughing week, and then last week. And then if you don't know what that means, I'm glad. Well, I'm glad you weren't here. And then he said to them, who? The Pharisees, who were lovers of money and who were scoffing. He said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. So in their mind, they, they were always concerned about, you know, what's everybody going to think? They were, 
you know, what's the political wind here? He said, but God knows your hearts. God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. I, I still, it, I just, I still, as I told you a couple of weeks ago, I just, when I first read that, what does that mean? There's a lot of things that are highly esteemed. And does it mean everything? I mean, people love the mountains and a beautiful view. Does that mean God hates that? I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about that because then it, there's an ascetic quality to the teaching of Jesus here. But it's going to be balanced. Can we ever, we're going to talk a little bit about loving the world. Does that mean I can't love the, my grandson or love a, a, a precious moment with my wife overlooking the uh, ocean or something? I mean, does that mean that I can't enjoy the car that I drive? That, but I can go that way, and I don't want to be health, wealth, and prosperity gospel where everything, I really go to God for all my blessings, but am I, spot, am I supposed to not enjoy anything that God's given me? Where's the balance in this? Come back next week. We're going to discuss that. <laughs> Cha-ching. It says, okay, now verse 16. And the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, John the Baptist. And since that time, the gospel of the kingdom has been preached. So what are we, what is he talking about? The gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. And remember, the key is not just now. Galatians 3 said that the gospel was preached to Abraham. So the gospel is the good news of God's plan for restoration of mankind. And so when God said to Abraham, in your seed all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, he's talking about the downline which would eventually arc towards that superpower which is Jesus taking on human flesh and then becoming a blessing to all the nations of the world. And then Paul says, see, that was the gospel being preached to Abraham. But this is an expansion, a, a deeper understanding of the kingdom of God and the gospel. And then we looked at this more specifically last week, and everyone is forcing his way into it. And then we looked at John 11, where Jesus is saying, the violent men take the kingdom by force. And I said, well, we talked about what that means. And what it does not mean. And then lastly, catch this, but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to fail. And then out of nowhere, seemingly, in terms of the, the, the thought line, you're, you're thinking, because sometimes I go, did they get this right? Did, they, did Jesus really say that in this context? Out of, I mean, he's talking about the law and the prophets, and all of a sudden he says, and everyone who divorces his wife and marries another, commits adultery. And a lot of times sermons don't include that. That's why I force myself. If you've ever known a church at the Red Door, we go line by line by line. Inductive, not deductive. I, I force myself to confront verses like this so we can say, well, what does this mean? Otherwise, we hide. We run from our Bible. We read our Bible. And if you've married someone who's been divorced or you're... And does that just include men? Is that, that means men can remarry and they're not happy? What does this even mean? And why did Jesus bring it up here? One who marries one? What does divorce have to do with this line of thinking? I'm going to give you my take. Okay, you ready? Phil, you did a great job. But Jesus, we need help. Help us understand. Give us wisdom and discernment. Help us understand the grace, loving beauty of your heart. That you, we can never go beyond. And this is not the unpardonable sin. Lord, we even did a message on that one time. Lord, this is not. There is grace, grace, grace for people who have gone through divorce. 
or married to someone who's been through divorce. Why were you saying this, Lord? Help us understand it in Jesus' name. Okay, here we go. Now, number one, and here's the overriding premise here. These Pharisees, Jesus talking about the kingdom of God, they talked about the kingdom of God. Now, they saw it in a different way. They saw it as a physical rule immediately. The Romans were going to be overtaken, whatever. But they would have certainly written themselves into the script of the coming of the kingdom of God. Don't you think? I mean, if anybody's going to be there to, ru- to bring in this, whoever this Messiah figure is, he's going to like us because we're, you know, we're God's chosen, not only God's chosen race, but even among the race, we're the ones who really are the custodians of all that is sacred and all that is kingdom and all that is the God of our forefathers. So they would have certainly written themselves into the script. There's no question about that. But there's a problem. Jesus begins to discuss things like money. And he discusses things like, well, the pride and, and their arrogance and he discusses now divorce. And, and ultimately, we're going to finish this morning, he starts talking about hell. Why? Why this just kind of systematic... He just, and, and we really see that in all this kind of parabolic teaching that Jesus has been doing is that we've been working our way through this. The question is, I saw a picture the other day. It was, it was in some kind of cathedral somewhere. And it had a picture, and so I actually should have printed it, and maybe I'll bring it next week, but it was a picture of a Jesus and Jesus, and you could see it was the same person. But one was kind of dark and foreboding, and there was kind of a thing behind his head, and then the other one was kind of bright and shining, and, and there's the, the Jesus of love and grace, and then, there's this, and then there's this Jesus of money changers table, you know, overturning. And In fact, I, was, uh, I play on Saturday mornings, and I play with a group that I'm beginning to have a relationship with, and... And somebody even mentioned that, well, you know, turning over the money changers tables. And people know that. You don't have to go to church and you've heard of this. Or Jesus being harsh like this, language that's tough and biting and to the point. Who is it? Will the real Jesus please stand up? I mean, wasn't there a game show that had that at some point? For anybody over the age of, I don't know. But which, is, which Jesus is it? It's all the loving, compassionate, merciful Jesus. But sometimes, sometimes we need strong medicine. Sometimes I need someone to tell me that I have cancer and that I need to go down a line of treatment. I don't like that doctor. I want to find a doctor that says I don't have cancer and I'm doing great and I'm looking, you know, really fantastic. I really prefer those doctors. So do I. What's his name? Can you give me his, you think you can get me in to see him? Would anybody really do that if they felt that there was some chance that maybe they did have a form of cancer, and maybe some of you are going through that now. Do you really want a doctor? Uh, it's fine to have someone with a good bedside manner, but I do want somebody that's going to read the science and look at it and go, I'm sorry, you have cancer, but here's a, here's a plan of treatment, or here's, here's, an, here's an action we can take. Say, of course I would want that. I wouldn't want some. I, that doctor would never stay in business. Exactly. And Jesus is about to point out, he's about to point out that they well, that they have cancer. Now, I want to address this issue of divorce first. We're going to go to Matthew 19. Matthew 19 is another encounter that Jesus has, and he's talking to the religious leaders about divorce. And it's in a little bit larger context, but they're trying to catch him in something. Let me give you just a little bit of background before we read the scripture. A little bit of background. 
just the generation before Jesus, there were two primary rabbis in Israel. If you know a little bit of this information, you'll understand some of these interactions that they're having. There was a school of Hillel, which is some kind of can see, they suggest he might have kind of been equivalent to more of a liberal view on the law. And then there was Shammai. And Shammai, a little bit more conservative, we always have our divisions, right? It's even true theologically. We have our divisions. There's charismatic non. There's a da 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 Reform, non-reform. There's dispensational, ah, you know. People just go, I don't know. I just want to know about Jesus. But there were these two schools of thought, and they were trying to catch him, uh, going down a road, and who would he, who would he, who would he support? Was it Hillel or Shammai, or what was he going to say? And maybe they could even catch him and contradicting Moses or anything. And so here's what they said in in Matthew chapter 19, they said, Jesus said, because of the hardness of your heart, they were asking about divorce, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, now in this context, he adds a little caveat here, except for immorality. So some of you may have felt real guilty, but then you say, well, okay, all right, if we're going to set up this legal standard, uh, was there any immorality? What, did I divorce my spouse because of immorality? No, but I think he looked after a woman. I saw him take a look at a woman. We were at a restaurant once, and I knew what was going on in his heart. And Jesus said, if you've done that, you've already committed adultery. So he's committed adultery. Therefore, I have grounds to divorce him. Do you see where this is going? Are we lo- is Jesus bringing this point up to try to clarify a legal precedent by which he could forever send you to hell or at least, you know, put you in the corner for time out or in some way hamper the rest of your life or is that the purpose? No, who's he speaking to? This is for all of us, but who's he speaking to? The Pharisees who loved money, who loved the synagogues and the respectful places, who loved the younger woman over there, and now we have precedent with Moses, at least with Hillel. Did you know that Hillel says, yes, you can divorce your wife? This is true. I am not making this up. I read it in uh, Randy's book. No. Uh, Are you ready for this? You can divorce your wife under the teachings of Hillel. You could divorce your wife for burning a meal. I'm not exaggerating. or Or being unpleasant. That's true. I have. You cannot. You 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 really can't even make that stuff up. Shemai was not so liberal with his views of the ability to divorce your wife. And then even during the time of Moses, if you read, go back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. You can look this up, right? If you're taking notes, go back to Deuteronomy 24. The context was divorce. It emerges all over the Old Testament. It even emerges in the last book of Malachi. It was constantly something. Why? Because anytime you see a man, especially we're talking about men now, anytime you see a man that's failing, there's going to be three fundamental things he's fallen in love with outside the creator God and the glory. It's always going to be, you ready? God, glory, and girls. It's always going to be the same. You cannot find, it's just men want, and, and what is it? It is it is really the picture of the three categorical sins that we're going to talk about. 1 John chapter 2, Jesus, well, this is actually John speaking here. 
And again, I'm going to clarify some of this next week. What does this mean? Does it mean I can't love anything in the world? I got to walk around as a monastic, you know, you know, and just drive the ugliest beater I can find and, and, and go to the, the cheapest restaurants with the most nasty food and, and marry the ugliest spouse and hope you have ugly kids and wear ugly clothes and, you know, or I, I, what does this mean? You can't, you can't enjoy anything, and yet the Bible's clear. There's balance here, you know, thanking God for every, all the good things that he's given us, and yet you read some. So remember, there's balance always to Scripture. Don't love the world. 1 John 2, verse 15, do not love the world. Don't love the things in the world. Well, there it says, Jeff. You can't argue that. We'll talk about it again. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him for all that is in the world. And then these are the three categorical sins. You ready? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. They're not from the Father, but from the world, and the world's passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of the Father, what? Lives forever. Well, if I want to live forever, what do we do with that? I tell you what we do with that. We just kind of go in and we kind of feel bad about it and it kind of, then it starts to dissipate and an hour after service and then for some of you really sensitive people, two hours after service and then you, and then you start, and I really can't like that, I can't like that and then eventually you start liking it and you, you try to put it out of your mind. Is that, is that what's going on here? No, no. Jesus is addressing these three issues. Why? Because he loves the Pharisees so much. And it's not just the Pharisees. This is true for us today. This is just as applicable to us today as it was during the time of Jesus. He's trying to address them. He's trying to say, look, there is sin that, revo- that resides in your heart, hardness of heart. That's what we just saw in Matthew 19. Moses allowed you to do it because of the hardness of your heart. And the concern I have, Jesus is saying, the concern I have for you, and I love you so much, is that hard hearts, just like anything, if you've got something that's hard, hard cover there. It takes more force to break it, to, to open it up. And Jesus is confronting the hardness of their heart because he loves them. Not to set, just, just randomly set some new principle. Of course God hates divorce. Of course he hates divorce. It always has consequences. This is not a abrogation. Now somehow we move away then you know, divorce is fine. And divorce. It had become part of their culture, though. It had actually become inscribed on the tablets of their heart, their hard heart, that, well, Moses said we could, and so we can, and, and that anything that they could do to begin to make this okay in the heartbeat of God. Of course, the design was one man, one woman, married for all time. Why? Because they become one flesh. And if you're tearing flesh apart, if you've ever had that, that's what a wound is. Of course, there's woundedness in this. God doesn't want it. It brings pain. But that's really not the point that, that's not the reason Jesus is bringing this up. He's trying to persuade the Pharisees that they can't even hear what he's saying because of gold and glory and, well, girls. I think I'll divorce my wife. I like Hillel. She was unpleasant last night. Well, you got to understand, she was really unpleasant. And she, she didn't burn the food, but, you know, it was close. No, it's not the point here. Please, please understand. Paul Tripp says something about sin. This is what Paul Tripp says about sin. It's hard to admit, but 
doing what is right, it just isn't natural for us. And I've told you many times that some of the greatest hiding places for Satan ever are religion, because the hearts can become more hardened. If, if the inside hasn't been changed, a new heart and a new spirit, and you start providing religious context where you feel emboldened to go ahead for men with the gold and the glory and the girl, you don't think you can use religion to get glory and girls and gold? You don't think power, there's power in religion. We can, we can point it to, towards ourselves, and you see men implode all the time. It's natural for us. Sin turns us all into self-appointed sovereigns over our own little kingdoms. They had their own little kingdoms. That's what they had. That was what they had. They had it all perfectly figured out. Moses said we could. Hillel says we can. We love the respect of people. They were rich. A lot of the religious leaders were very wealthy. Sin makes us all self-absorbed and self-focused. Sin causes us to all to name ourselves righteous. That's what sin does. Sin seduces us into thinking we are somehow, some way, smarter than God. Ever been there? Have you got an area of your life right now that you know is not in alignment with his will, but somehow it's okay for me? That little inner theologian that keeps talking to you to say, well, this is okay because, and then you can, well, I'm convinced we can justify anything, anything. Sin makes us all want to write our own rules. Sin makes us resistant to criticism and change, and sin makes our eyes and our heart wander. Sin causes us to crave material things more than spiritual provision. Sin causes us to want and esteem pleasure more than character in our quest to be God. Now notice this transition. See, when we're our own sovereign, we are, we are our own God. The Pharisees, as religious as they appeared, were whitewashed tombstones. They were, in fact, their own gods. But this is not just for religious leaders 2,000 years ago. This is for every one of us. We all have a pull, a natural pull with sin to become our own sovereigns. And then lastly, it reduces us all to glory thieves. I love how he puts that. Taking for ourselves the glory that belongs only to him. All of this means that sin causes us to step over God's wise boundaries in thoughts, in desires, in words, in actions, again and again and again, and that's exactly what is natural for a sinner. I don't know how you can describe sin more beautifully than that. And we just somehow pull away from it. We just say, well, sin, and we play with it. And I was doing a study with some men this week, and, and I was looking at Proverbs chapter 7, and you can see the seductress's voice, and what does she do? Now he, first, he just goes out of his house and starts towards her house. Nothing's happened yet. There's no sin that's occurred. And he does it, and then twilight comes, and then evening comes, and then finally darkness, and then he's led away to slaughter in a spiritual sense. It always starts in the bright of day, just with an intention of the heart, and then eventually it gets a little darker, and then it's just a little bit darker, and then all of a sudden you're in darkness, and now you can't see, and the Pharisees were exactly in that place. They could not see. They did not have eyes to see, nor did they have ears to hear. It was impossible, and I cannot imagine in my own walk that there are not still possible areas of my life that I am oblivious to what the Spirit is trying to 
tell me. And that's why I have the word. That's why I have prayer. That's why the spirit is with us. And that, my friends, that's why we have community. So we can come together and glean off one another, be challenged by one another. You cannot do religion or faith, a real faith walk alone. And so God gave us the church to help us avoid these pitfalls. I think there's a sequence here. And it's radical. It's radical. First of all, you've got to recognize it has to be entered forcefully. How forceful? Violently. If the Pharisees were to pick this up and go, okay, we're going we're gonna to listen to what you say. It's a violent, a, a radical. It's impossible. This, this walk in this kingdom is profound. It's complex. The one thing it obviously cannot be, it cannot be, is easy and passive and uneventful. Following Jesus is not easy, it's not passive, and it's not, it's not uneventful. Never, it cannot be. I have a precious friend, a couple friend of mine, and, and uh, they've been doing some amazing things in the kingdom, acts of generosity. And I was talking to my friend, and he said, you know, I've had little bouts of discouragement, even, even lately, and my, my walk with the Lord is not quite as, you know, somehow, and... And is that to be surprising? We have an adversary, right? And we, and we have a pull, and, and we, we live in a body, and we're not, we're not released from these things. We know it cannot be uneventful. I think part of the force and the violence, too, is not just our decision to, be, to, to forsake all, but it then brings us into spiritual combat. That's part of the violence of entering the kingdom. There is spiritual things that will happen in your life as you come to Jesus. It cannot be uneventful. And the danger signs is, well, Jesus is trying to unpack the danger signs in front of the Pharisees. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. Here, here are the danger signs. We call, you can call it God, uh, glory, and girls, and gold, or whatever you want, the three categorical sins. But now we, we go to the third. First of all, he's already addressed their, their desire for the approval of men. That, to me, is the pride of life. He's already addressed the lust of the flesh. I think that's why he brings up divorce in that context. He's trying to cover all three. See, he conquered all three. When he was in the wilderness and he was tempted, he was tempted with the pride of life, he was tempted with the lust of the flesh, and he was tempted with the lust of the eyes. Lust doesn't always have to be just sexual lust. It can be lust for anything. And so Satan was doing the same thing, and Jesus, Jesus conquered all of the three categorical sins. Turn this into bread. Bow down for me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus knew they were going to be his one day, but not in that way, not in that time. Jesus conquered them beautifully. And you see this, you see this systematic three categorical sins emerge over and over through Scripture. You can see it in David's life, King David's. You can see it, in, and sometimes you see them fail, and sometimes you see them advance. And the Bible's very open and honest and, and very filled with integrity. I love the Bible because it... It doesn't take our spiritual heroes and make them out to be Jesus because only Jesus is Jesus. And Jesus passed every test and he became the unblemished lamb. We're all blemished and we need him. That's the gospel. Pharisees couldn't see it. Pharisees couldn't see it. So it leads us to the third. Why would Jesus bring now up? The very next thing we see is Luke 16, verse 19. We're pressing beyond those four verses. You ready? This is a weird one. This is not one that's often preached on, unless you've got a, maybe a Southern Baptist background and you've got somebody that's willing to talk about hell pretty much all the time. 
Hell is just the separation, the eternal separation, a place that God chooses to allow men and fallen angelic realm to have it their way, to be their own sovereigns. That's all hell is. Hell is a place, eternal separation from God, where you can now do everything that you want to do and be your own sovereign. The problem is everybody else is doing their own thing, and they're, 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 they're co-sovereigns. And so everybody, and that is not a place you want to go. It's described, and you can't take this hyper-literally as I've described to you before because in one place it's a lake of fire and in another place it's eternal darkness. Can it be both? Fire, every time I'm around fire, there's, it, lights, it lights light. I mean, or is this language that's used as a literary device to try to get our attention? Jesus is about to get their attention now. And it's going to touch on one of their most prized possessions. going to be really the lust of their eyes and the, just the pride of life. Listen to what he says. There was a rich man. I don't know if this is a true story, if he's recounting something, if it's just a parable. It's not really described. You can take it for what it is. But here's Jesus. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every single day. At his gate was laid a beggar. Named Lazarus, covered with sores. Not talking about Lazarus that he raised from the dead, just a name. Covered with sores. And longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Not a pretty picture. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, when he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. Remember who he's, remember who he's speaking to. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that's been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And he answered, Oh, but I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also to come to this place of torment. Now, in some ways, when I first read that, I started to feel great empathy for him. He knows he's suffering but at least he has a heart for his family. I mean, there's something good in this guy, right? I mean, how can we, you know, how can God, you know, just say eternally you're separated now and I just, but you're getting, you're missing the point. We don't just pull this out and try to get some kind of moral principles. And Yes, they emerge from the story. God does hate divorce and God, there is eternal separation from God, but remember the point. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let him listen to them. That's how he started this. Until John, we had the law and the prophets. Remember, that's how we started Luke 16. Jesus. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And they said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone dies or just rises from the dead. Now, Jesus was obviously predicting his own death, burial, 
feast of first fruits come right up out of the ground. Just right in complicity with all the, all the things that have been written, all the way from the time of Moses, all the Leviticus 23 and all these different pictures and types and shadows cast forward, arcing forward to the ultimate Jesus, to the, to the creator of the universe, to, to the to the, but unblemished lamb and, and, and dying. And, so he's talking about his resurrection. And why is he telling the story? He says, especially for them. Because their decision had already been made. It wouldn't have mattered what Jesus did. Walked on the water, turned water into wine, raised the dead, you know. Even himself coming back from the dead. They, they had already made a decision. Decision made. I can't believe I'm telling this story in the middle of this. This is a very significant moment and time, and this is just not good oratory, but I'm going to do it anyway because I have no filter. So there was a guy who was a friend of mine. He was a God professional. He was a great guy, and uh, I've known him for a long time, and he had gone to Asia to play the PGA Tour uh, or to play the Asian Tour. And there was another guy over there, and he was a, oh, he was a wildcat. I mean, he was just, he was always just out of bounds. He was just colored outside the lines. That's just kind of who he was. And so my friend was leading the tournament, coming into the final round. And it would have been, it would have been a life-changing win for him, not just financially, but now it would have given him status. If you know kind of the golf world, get him status on different tour. It really helped his career. And so he was a fidgety kind of a guy anyway. And I don't say fidgety. He's a nice, great guy. But he, he would have been like me. I'd have kind of been... Back there, you know, kind of doing this. Say, okay, I got to play well. I got to play well. But somehow he had this decision he had to make, and he had two putters, and he was not convinced which putter he was going to use. And so he was just, and he was in his, he was in the locker room. And he's like, this putter, do I use this putter? 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 And this wildcat guy walks in. He goes, "What are you doing?" I won't say his name, but his name was Jerry. But uh, it, it's true that was actually his name. And Jerry says, "Well, you know, I'm trying to." I don't know whether I'm going to use this one, you know, this is kind of this, and I, sometimes I get a feeling of the speed of the ground. I don't know what the conversation was. He goes, I don't know which one to use. And, and a guy comes over there, and he picks him up, and he looked, and he kind of went, and he took the other one like that, and he took the putter, and he snapped it over his knee, and he said, decision made. <laughs> I'll never forget that. I said, you cannot be serious. That was not a real story. And he goes, that's a real story. He snapped it right over his leg, handed me the other putter, and said, See, I'm helping you out, decision made. The fact of the matter is, people make decisions all the time. It doesn't matter what you say. Does anybody have any friends, relatives, close people, people they really know, really care about? It doesn't matter what you say. You can talk about the resurrection, the impact Jesus has had on your life. You can talk about, it, oh, if you'd only come and, and listen and we go through the prophets. If anything's described in my ministries of the years, I talk through the law and the prophets. We spend a lot of time in the Old Testament. Why? Because everything is arcing toward Jesus, and it's intellectually compelling. It's moving. It's impossible for someone to talk about this Messiah figure as much as these prophets did and not see that it was Jesus, even in the 21st century. And they knew the prophets, and they weren't listening. And Jesus said, it doesn't matter. They have the law and the prophets. If they're not willing to see the obvious nature of the fulfillment of the law and the prophets in me, it doesn't even matter if someone's raised from the dead. Decision made. Maybe you're here in the sound of my voice and you just said, I made that decision a long time ago. And to be honest with you, you've never done any spiritual due diligence at all, ever. You won't go to a group. You won't find a friend who's a believer. Somebody's been praying for you. You had a, a parent or a, someone 
and you just you put them off. You mock it and you scoff at it because you already made the decision. It has no bearing in fact. It has no real reason for it other than somehow, and here's the point, you're protecting through the hardness of your own heart gold and glory and girls, lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. And when you love the world, you can't love God because you can't even hear God. You can't hear him. Jesus loved them so much that he was willing to touch right on the point, right where it hurt. You ever been to a PT? You're like, this is the one place it hurts. Why are you sticking your knuckles down there? And, you know, the one place, don't touch it. I've already decided I'm going to live like this. In fact, I've even dressed it up to make it look religious. I've told you this before. I read it in Jamie's book, and I think it's right. We just want two things in life. We want perpetual joy, perpetual happiness, and we want immortality. Once those two things are solved, and the religious leaders had done exactly those two things, but the wrong way. They had maintained the hardness of the heart, and they imagined that religion to cover the immortality part, and then all their other little things that they had set up, from divorce to this and that, and, and to, so where they could love money, and they could, they could love it above God. I look, I'm glad that I'm provided for. But if God tells me to give it away, I'm going to give it away. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that I, I have a beautiful wife and I, 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 all kinds of things. And I'm not going to give her away because the Lord's not going to ask me to do that. But, but you get the point. The pride of life and all these kinds of things. I, not, I, and I'm so grateful and I can enjoy them, but I'm not relative to the call of God. I, I want fruitfulness in my life. We talked about that last week, 2023. Lord, I want to be fruitful. And I know that's going to take me down some tough paths. He dressed them on this habit form. Now, one of the things that I think are important to look at this parable in closing is that it was his habit. He habitually, habitually. And why do you think that was? I think there was a thought loop going on in this rich man's head in this parable. I think if we were to go back and try to kind of psychoanalyze what was going on here from a spiritual perspective, why did this rich man not even, why was he even incapable of seeing Lazarus right outside his door who was dying? Not even, a, not even crumbs. He wouldn't even give him any crumbs. What was it? There was a thought loop going on here. He was pursuing happiness and immortality as best he could. He might have even been religious. Proverbs 7 says the same thing. There was an, an adulteress, and yet she was out giving vows and tithes. and this. And, she'd already done her sacred obligation. So were the Pharisees. So maybe some of you doing religious things, but protecting like crazy the love of the world. And that's what they were doing. We're, we're horrible at understanding what's going to make us happy. He said, I thought this message was about happiness. It is. There, Lori Santos who's a Yale professor, has done an incredible amount of work, and I mentioned this last week, but she says we have really, she didn't use the words lousy, but I, I substituted that in. We have really lousy intuitions when it comes to the kinds of things that make us happier. Who hadn't had that thought? If I can just have this, you know, you have this moment, maybe a beautiful moment, you're overlooking an ocean, and, and there's a little, you know, umbrella drink, and you're with someone you love, and this and that, and you, and how, what, to what great lengths will we go to, to re- to rekindle some moment like that, and it may only last like five minutes or less. 
but we'll, we'll go to, we'll, we'll sacrifice our family. Something, because that moment of happiness, I've got to have some happiness. Give me some happiness. I've just got to have some happiness. I've got to, and that's what's happening with a rich man. I, so much so that he becomes blind to the pain around him. There is a thought loop that's going on here. The life coach directory says thought loops and spirals are ingrained negative thought patterns that have become habits in our mind. He's doing this habitually. In the same way, we can have a habit of biting our nails or twirling fingers through our hair. Thought loops can come up at particular times for us, such as when we're thinking about trying something new or challenging or feeling anxious. Or Why was he so anxious? He was trying to be happy. The rich man wasn't just rude. He was trying to be happy. And the more he gave himself and the more he provided himself and the way he lived and everything he did made him blind to the pain of others because he was just on this loop. Got to be happy, got to be happy, got to be happy, got to be happy. And we know, but, you know, Ecclesiastes said it, you know, the more someone has, they, their life increases. The, the, the reality is you, you get more money. It's, look, if you don't have any money and you get some money, it does. There's really up to about a certain level. I've told you this many times, and that's what Lori Santos says, about $75,000. And above that, it's almost negligible, your happiness quotient after. I've repeated that so many times because it's, I mean, it's a secular science and it just doesn't make you that much happier. Jesus wants you to be happy so that what? You can be a light who wants to hear the message of Jesus from a grumpy old man. Hey, you know, Democrats and Republicans and socialism and, you know, all these things may be true. And if you don't get on the right track, you know, you're, going to go to hell and, and it's, you know and I can just hear the flocking to the flocking and yet we don't want to go to the other end and you know God's there to make you happy messages every week the health wealth and prosperity gospel but there is a balance here so in closing I, I really felt and some of you said you already said in closing so uh, <laughs> this is true this is this is it this is the end of this is the end of the morning Look, we need to be purified. Are you with me? The Pharisees need purification, but they think they're purified. That's what made it so dangerous. That's why he brought up divorce, because they were divorcing their wives. That's why he brought up hell. They were habitual. It was their habit to try to be happy, and they were ignoring the plight of everybody, and they couldn't hear the message of the kingdom. They loved respectful greetings, they, and Jesus even addresses it. That's why he's talking to them like this. And that's why he's still, these words reverberate all the way down. So I was thinking this week, and I, and I just, I felt like the Lord said, Malachi, 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 Malachi. If you don't know where Malachi is, it's the last book of the Old Testament, the Tanakh. There's about a 400 or so year period between Malachi and, and then the emergence of Jesus onto the scene. And I just... And it's like the Lord was just saying, it's the same cycle. It's the same three categorical sins. It's the same thing. Israel made this mistake over and over and over. And I have to believe, because Israel's story is our story, that I am subject to the same temptations not only Jesus had, but, you know, the rich man, the Pharisees. And this is just, you're going to be tempted with all three of these every single day of your life. But in Malachi, what were they doing? What, how, what was the outcome? Well, the priests, they were dishonoring God because they were bringing blemished animals for the sacrifice. He was indicting the priests. Same thing. Malachi, same thing. 
They were giving partiality in the instruction. So they were trying to preserve some money and sacrifice, and they were taking the good things and giving God the lesser things. And then they were trying to give part, since they were giving partiality in the instruction, which means if I really wanted you just like me, I would never preach a message like this. I'd just tell you how, how great you are, and we'd all go out thinking how great we are, and you would never change, and neither would I. So we entrust our souls to Jesus and his teaching and the entirety and the entire narrative of Scripture, and it, sometimes it hurts. And they were also robbing God by not fulfilling all the requirements and all the different things. So, and, and also, by the way, what do you think they were doing? They were divorcing their wives. And Malachi is addressing all three, all three of those things again. You think that's unusual? And here's my close. You ready? But how does Malachi finish? Leaving them in the lust of the world, the lust of the eyes, and the lust of the flesh, and the boastful part of life. You're going to hell. That is not how Ma if Malachi, he does not finish the story there. And that's what I want you to know. I don't care how deeply in love with you are with the world. If you've been an, uh, an, an adulterer and married an, uh, a person that's, or you've gone through divorce, or you've put your wife away, or whatever, and you know, and you fell back on, you know, whatever, whatever it is that you feel guilty about, here's the, here's the beauty of the gospel. He loves you right where you are, as much as you may have failed. And here's what he says, 400 years before the time of Jesus, Malachi 3, listen to what he says, third chapter and final chapter of the Old Testament. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, notice, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So the messengers, John the, this is a predictive prophecy of John the Baptist who's clearing the way. Isaiah 40 saw the same thing, clear the way in the wilderness, etc. And then I'm going to come into my temple. He's clearing the way for me. So this is another picture, by the way, of the incarnation, whether you're aware of it or not. And, he's, and I, see, and the Lord says, whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. He, he goes from me to him, but it's the same thing. I'm going to come, and it, it's, it's beautiful language in the Hebrew to say God's saying it's him, but it's also me. Powerful. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. Now we're talking about Jesus. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can do that? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. See what's happening here? All Jesus is doing? is he's purifying the sons of Levi. He's coming as a smelter, as a purifier of things that have been hidden for years in the religious elite because he loves them. He came suddenly into his temple. They never could have imagined. Not a conquering king. He came to purify them. And to secure that purity, he's going to have to die. And that's what he did for you. And because he died for you, you can walk out of here. I don't care if you've been married or remarried or married... Ten women or ten men that had been married prior. You can walk out of here utterly and completely purified. You never have to look back. You never have to go back. Do not let Satan come in 
and wear you out. You'll never amount to anything. You're a second-class citizen. You've been married and remarried and all, whatever it is. You never, it never has to happen because, well, Malachi saw it. God, through Malachi, said, there's coming a purifier, and he will purify you, and he will also forgive you. And that, my friends, is the real story of the whole Bible right there, okay? So in closing, in closing, some of you have been hiding for a long time. You've just been hiding. You don't have to hide. This song, would you allow this song? The real purpose, would you allow this song? That Jesus has given you an invitation today. Maybe you've never accepted him. Well, you're not covered yet. You're not purified yet. You can do that right now. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Maybe you're watching television or online or whatever. Lord, forgive me of my sins. I am asking you to cover me in the blood. I, I, trans, I just feel my sin being transferred to you, and you paid the price for it. And somehow the gospel says, you'll forgive me. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And I want that. Do that right now. But you can't cling to that guilt. You forget what lies behind. You have to now come out of hiding. Once you've been saved, you can come right out of hiding. We'll close with that.